Okay, we've looked at a new creation. A new creation where God creates brand new, something from nothing, something that has never been done before. We looked at a new communion. That intimacy, not only with God, but with each other. The presence of God, the absence of grief, and a closeness that we have yet to experience. We talked about a new community. That there are free resources in that and a firm rest and family inheritance. And there was another thing that I forgot, but you got it. You already took We did that already. Now we come to number four in our outline. A new capital. A new capital. And this is where it really starts to get interesting. Verse 2. Go back to verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Which begins to raise a question that gets even deeper. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of those seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And I go, Great! Here we are! Here comes the church. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now, does that confuse anybody else? I thought we were the bride. Didn't we talk about this in death? Revelation 19? The marriage feast of the Lamb. And here's the bride. And the bride is the church. And the bride is, the church is talked about as the bride in other places in Scripture. Ephesians 5 where, where Paul describes his husband-wife relationship as a Jesus church relationship. The church is the bride. But, but here he says, I'm going to show you the bride. And John probably like us went, oh, cool, the church. And he's taken up to a high mountain and he watches as this city comes down from the heavens. New Jerusalem. The language, by the way, and this is just amazing. I want you to get a picture of this. New heavens, new earth. New earth is created. This massive planet, if you will. New heavens, beautiful, expansive. And then in between, hovering, as it were, in between new earth and new heavens, will be New Jerusalem. The capital, the new capital of eternity. It will be a gateway capital city shining forth the glory of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God. In New Jerusalem, the glory of God is experienced. The glory of God is realized. Our hope to see and to be surrounded by His glory is realized. But again, we, we have to stop and go, well, wait, isn't the bride the church? But here's New Jerusalem, so which is it? Is the bride New Jerusalem or is the bride the church? And the answer is very simply, it's both. The bride is the church. The bride is the New Jerusalem. Let me explain it this way. The Bridge Christian Fellowship is not this barn. This is not the bridge. But what do people say when they hop into the cars? What do you even say sometimes on Sunday morning? Come on, we're going to be late to the bridge. we got to get to church. Well, you're not coming to church because we're the church. And you're not going to the bridge. We are the bridge. The Bridge Christian Fellowship is not a location. It's a people. It's a fellowship. That's why we use that word, fellowship, because that's what it is. It's not a building. It's not a structure. It's not a town or a city. It's a community of people knitting their hearts together in the Lord. 
And that's the same concept we're seeing here. New Jerusalem is the bride. Listen to this. New Jerusalem is the bride because it's where the citizens reside. What citizens? The church. New Jerusalem is called the bride because it's where we will reside. New Jerusalem, gang, going into eternity is your zip code. New Jerusalem, because you are in the church, will be your hometown. Watch this. Verse 11 going on tells us that her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Crystal clear jasper. Jasper was the diamond of John's day. If you look at a jasper stone, that that was the word literally for diamond. What we would consider a diamond, a, a pure white stone, a stone you could look right through. It was crystal. It was absolutely beautiful. And that's what we would see, what we would call a common day diamond. But down in verse 18, you'll also see that the city was made of pure gold. Now, what do you think of when you see a diamond set on pure gold? A wedding ring. A wedding ring. The bride and the wedding ring. I think that's kind of cool. What is, I believe the close association, listen, between the church and, new, and the new capital, New Jerusalem, indicates our zip code, our hometown. It's the place that we get to, we get to reside. Now you have this picture. Here's the new earth, and now the new heavens, the new Jerusalem in between that hovers as this gateway between heaven and earth. And I think we're going to be able to move about back and forth. Earth, new, new Jerusalem, heaven, back and forth throughout eternity. All this new has been created for us to reside in. A new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. But home base for the church will be New Jerusalem. But listen, the Lord has not forgotten Israel. We talked about Israel this morning. I got home and I told Cheryl there's one regret I had in our study this morning, our prophecy update. We looked at the history of what Israel has gone through conflict-wise. But at the end of the study, it was hot in here, and so I just moved on and, and, and wrapped things up and talked about God's compassion and love for us. What I didn't do was show you the future of Israel, what they have to look forward to, the time when Israel will no longer experience any conflict. Let me show it to you right now, verse 12. This new Jerusalem, this wonderful city, had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates were 12 angels. And names were written on them, that is the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Wow. Verse 13. Three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three gates on the west. And the names on the gates will be Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Joseph. Every single one of the gates on New Jerusalem. Rick, you sound like you think this is literal. I do. Why do you think that? Because that's what the Bible says. Why would I think it otherwise? And each one of these gates, three on either side will have one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every time someone enters into New Jerusalem from any direction, they will have to stop and recognize and remember that it was through Israel that the Lord brought salvation to all people. It was through Israel. They were the vehicle that He used, not only to bring Jesus into the world, but also to express His relationship with a people, to show us how He wanted it to be. To show us also how rebellious the human heart is, but to show us also that in spite of our rebellion, His grace is bigger than the worst of our sins. We will enter in New Jerusalem and look up and see Reuben's name and think, He came through Israel. What an absolute miracle. 
The connection, by the way, between Jews and Gentiles here is even more intimate, as you'll see in just a moment. But even today, even today, our access to understanding God's blessed plan is through the gates of the Jewish community. It is through the Old Testament leading up to the New. I have been so blessed over the last couple of years to walk through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we are right now, because we are walking through the gates of Israel. And we are seeing God's plan, and we are seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament through the lens of Israel, the people that God chose to use to express Himself to the world. And so the names of the twelve tribes will be on these twelve gates, engraved on the gates. And it's interesting too, it's, it's a picture that reminds us somewhat of, somewhat of the tabernacle and the way it was set up. Although the tabernacle only had one gate in the front, but now you've got gates all the way around indicating free access, easy entry into New Jerusalem. Verse 14 going on says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Oh, this is wonderful. The apostles' names now. See how the 12 tribes of Israel, their names are on the gates, but on the foundation stones, 12 stones, the apostles' names are now engraved. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, says, You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles. The foundation stones were the apostles' names. There's a connection there. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so engraved here on these foundation stones, these 12 stones in New Jerusalem, will be the following names. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Judas' name will not be there. So whose name is going to be there? Acts chapter 1 indicates it's Matthias. Because in Acts chapter 1, you may remember the story. You may remember it. They were waiting around. Jesus said, hey, I want you to hang out in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And so they're hanging out and they're waiting. And Peter says, there's only 11 apostles. Something's out of order here. We need a 12th. So let's do this the most godly way we can. Someone get some straws. You got some dice? We can do it that way too. And so he cast lots. They cast lots, and they, the lot fell upon this guy, Matthias. Now listen, I'm sure Matthias was a great guy. I'm sure it was wonderful, but it's interesting to me that after Acts chapter 1, we never hear about Matthias again. But we do hear about Paul. We hear about Paul. His story begins in Acts chapter 9, and so we ask the question, well, goodness sakes, we've got two apostles now. We've got Matthias and we've got Paul. Which one is it? How can we know? Well, I think it's Paul, and here's why. The Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them when Matthias was chosen. Remember, at that time, they were supposed to be waiting for the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, Lord love him, Lord bless him, I think acted out of turn. Now, if I'm wrong, Pete and I will have a conversation about that, and I'll apologize to him later. But I think the indication is he acted ahead of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Peter also was not told to choose a replacement for Judas. What was Peter told to do? Wait! Wait! Wait, Peter. Don't do anything. You can almost hear Jesus saying it, Peter, I don't want you to do anything. Wait until you have my power, because just don't do anything, Peter. And just sit still until I give you my power. It's like Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. We've got to do something. Come on, guys, we've got to do something. And that's what Peter was always doing. And Jesus said, no, I want you to wait. 
The apostles, by the way, never chose the apostles, did they? At least historically, wasn't it Jesus who chose the apostles? He chose the original twelve. I believe Jesus chose Paul as well. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Since I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, that is at the time that Paul wrote this. And He said, Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles... Of course, at this time, Judas was dead. He appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm one of the apostles. I'm the least, Paul would say. I believe he was among the greatest. But he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... I am what I am. What are you, Paul? I believe one of the twelve. One of the twelve apostles, and I think we're going to see Paul's name engraved on one of those twelve foundation stones. Now check this out. Verse 15. (laughs) This is amazing. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. And its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. This is not a moon, it's a space station. Okay? For you Star Wars buffs, that's a line out of the movie. This is not a moon. What am I saying? This is bigger than the moon. Okay? This description of New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem will be bigger than our current moon is in overall size. It is massive. 1,500 miles cubed, apparently with 12 levels to it. New Jerusalem covers more than 3 billion square miles, and again, that's larger than our moon. Now think about this. The world is fast approaching 6.7 billion in total population. 6.7 billion. We're just underneath that as of... Friday. As of Friday, I went and looked. So we're just under 6.7 billion. And over 90% of people who have lived, at least since the flood, 90% of people who have lived are alive on the planet today. It's a lot of people. Now, if we generously say that out of all that across history, the 3 billion are saved, let's just say that 3 billion people actually are saved, believe in Jesus, come to a faith in Jesus, that's an average of a square mile of property per person within the walls of New Jerusalem. It's huge. It's stunning. It's massive, and God has planned for more than enough room for all. And that doesn't even get into the new earth or what's going on in the new heavens. That's just New Jerusalem. But going on, verse 17 says the following, And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which, by the way, this is good to know, are also angelic measurements. So when you're measuring something, you can say, hey, this is what the angels would say it is. You know, This is a yard according to me and the angels. Verse 18 says, The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear, clear glass. 72 yards is the height. Now, that would be about 216 feet high. Compared to New Jerusalem, that's a tiny little wall. That's like a a little picket fence by comparison size-wise. This wall, my friends, is not to keep things out or to keep things in. This wall is more picturesque than it is anything. 
with three gates on every side, easy access in and out of the city. What's the wall there for? It's a picture of beauty, not of security. The wall is made of jasper. Again, it's that crystal clear diamond. Think of it, diamond walls. Diamond picket, if you could have a diamond picket fence in front of your house, would that be amazing? It wouldn't last long, but but that's what we're talking about. A diamond picket fence that runs all the way around the beauty. Think about driving through the country and seeing a little house with a white picket fence and meshed with tulips and flowers and flowing green grass behind it, and you get this sense of serenity. You don't think when you see a little white picket fence, boy, that'll keep out the bad boys. Bad boys, what you going to do? It'll keep them out. And it's a safe place behind that little picket fence. No, what you see when you see a picket fence is, oh, that's nice. Isn't that pretty? That's lovely. And that's what John is describing. Verse 19, he goes on, he says, The foundation stones of the city, of the city wall, were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jason. And the twelfth, amethyst. Now, some of your translations may translate one or more of those stones slightly differently. They're all the same words. They're just different way of translating them. They're trying to get a handle, the translators were, on what kinds of stones were being talked about here. But what's interesting, and I can't say this is absolute fact, but I think it's pretty close. What's being talked about here are 12 stones that I believe parallel the 12 stones that were on the breast piece of the high priest. The 12 stones, each one of those represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed on that breast piece of the high priest. Now we have to translate again from early Hebrew to latter Greek to, to be sure, and it's difficult exactly to do that, but I think what we're looking at is the stones in the breast piece. That would be Exodus 28, 17-21 if you want to go back and do a comparison. But aside from that connection, listen, this is interesting, a link between the foundation stones and what was on the breast piece is interesting. It's called, you may recall you Bible students, the Urim and the Thummim. I was cautioned not to call it the Uma Thurman. It's the Urim and the Thummim. Exodus 28 verse 30 says, You shall put in the breast piece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. They shall be over Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And we talked about recently that the Urim and the Thummim may not have been separate pieces. It may actually have been the stones in the breast piece itself. And by the way, that is why I'm in here instead of out there. You just saw what fell. Okay. <laughs> the breast piece, it's believed by some that when Moses, when the high priest went before the Lord and prayed and sought answer, that somehow the Urim and the Thummim gave them answer. And there have been those who proposed that maybe they were like sticks that actually were like casting lots, but that's so, it's not accurate. It's not accurate historically. There's not a picture of that. What's more likely is that something happened with those stones. That those stones themselves may have somehow supernaturally functioned to give answer. Whether they lit up, it's possible. You're going, oh, come on, Rick, this is sounding like science fiction. Listen, Urim and Thummim literally means lights and perfections. That's the meaning of the words. And we don't know exactly how they work, but we do know the Urim and the Thummim on the breastpiece, those 12 stones, we know somehow they reveal the will of God. 
It's a beautiful connection. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Here's the point. Jesus is our cornerstone, the foundation of Zion. And the very colors of these stones represent not only beauty and splendor, but they indicate the wisdom and the will of God. How? By pointing us to the light and the perfection which is Jesus Christ. So even in the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, there is a hint, an arrow toward Jesus. Toward the perfect revealed will of God who is Jesus Going on, verse 21, tells us the twelve gates were twelve pearls. So there's where the concept of the pearly gates comes from. Except there are twelve of them, not just two in the front with Peter standing there letting people in one at a time. That's such a, a westernized view of things. It's not accurate. Twelve gates, twelve pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We have not seen a gold as pure as the streets of New Jerusalem. Interesting that each of the twelve tribes are inscribed on these pearly gates. And the thing that's interesting to me, I said a moment ago that there's a connection and intimacy between Israel and Gentiles that is yet to be experienced. And here we see it. If you think about what a pearl is, what it comes from, how a pearl is made, a pearl is an irritation. That's how it starts out. It's an irritating little piece of sand or it might be a dead little worm or something that gets inside an oyster. And it begins to irritate the oyster and so the oyster doesn't have to be irritated. It secretes something that begins to surround that little piece of irritating sand until it's soft and round and perfect and that's how you get a pearl. The gates are made of pearls but this is interesting. The pearl in scripture represents Gentiles. That's what the pearl points to in Scripture. Matthew chapter 13 verse 45 tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now listen, the pearl here in this parable cannot represent Israel for a couple of reasons but primarily because it was an unclean creature. An oyster, a pearl coming out of an unclean creature, and the Israelis of today, Israelites actually in the old, older days, it was unclean to them. Oysters were, and so the pearl came out of something unclean. But a pearl is obviously precious to God. And so these pearly gates represent Gentiles, but the names of Israel are written all over us. Isn't that amazing? The connection. Paul tells us in Ephesians that, that Jesus made peace between two men. He brought peace. He connected them, the Jew and the Gentile, he brought together. And so we have these pearly gates, a reminder of Gentiles in Scripture, but the names of the Jewish tribes written on those gates. Jesus, in this parable, is the merchant. He himself is the Jewish merchant who sold all he had to buy this pearl, which to him had great value. He gave up his life to make wormy, irritating grains of sand, like you and me, wormy, irritating but he made us into pearls. He changed us. He poured his grace over us and made something beautiful out of us. Something that we did not earn. Something that we did not deserve. Take serious note of this, gang. We are not priests in New Jerusalem because we earned it over Israel. We are priests in New Jerusalem because we are on display as a testimony of God's grace. 
as people flow into New Jerusalem, our zip code, the place where the bride resides. They'll come in and they'll see the bride and they'll just go, wow, God is a God of grace. Look at what He's done. Look at how He saved. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did He do that? Why? So that, Paul writes, in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That there would be a massive new revelation in this new Jerusalem. The revelation of the intensity of His grace. Verse 22. I saw no temple in it, that is, new Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. In other words, since there's no night, and in the day the gates are never closed, the gates are always open, 24-7. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. In verse 27, nothing unclean. Nothing unclean. Hang on to verse 27. Isaiah describes something similar to this. A great light. He says in Isaiah 30 verse 26, The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter. Like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of His people. And heals the bruise that He has inflicted. But that's during the Millennial Kingdom. In New Jerusalem, there's no need for the sun. There's no need for the reflective moon. There's no need for the stars because the Lord God and the Lamb, they are the temple and they are the light. And the kings of the earth will go back and forth between it. This is one of the reasons I said earlier, I think we're going to be able to travel between New Earth and New Jerusalem. We're just going to be able to flow back and forth, check things out down here, go home up there. We'll always have a home to come to. You know how, how you go on a, on a long trip? Maybe you're gone a week, ten days, you're, you're gone three, four weeks, and that feeling when you drive up the drive, you know, or when you're coming back into your hometown, that sense of, I'm home. We will always have that in New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem will be our hometown. And again, the gates are never shut. There's always constant 24-7 access. And finally, we see here that God has accomplished that original vision for mankind intimate, eternal fellowship. Just as God walked with Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden, now man will walk with God in New Jerusalem and in the new heavens and the new earth as portrayed in the new creation, the new community, the new communion and the new capital. And then finally, verse 27, nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's interesting to me again that John mentions lying. No liars will be here. For even in Eden, that seemingly perfect original garden, there was lying. And there was sin. And it's lying and deception that keeps sin going in the world today. But in New Jerusalem, no lying, no sin. And God's purposes will be accomplished. 
Friday I finished this study, and I, I sent out an email. You might have gotten it. I, I do this from time to time when I get really excited, and I just have to tell people ahead of Sunday, okay, check this out. You know, I'll send it off to everybody in the fellowship just to say I'm, I'm just thrilled. Because I, I began to, again, get that vision of the great beyond. Beyond the rapture of the church. Beyond the glorious appearing of Jesus, beyond that millennial kingdom, there is a great beyond that's more glorious than anything we can imagine, anything we've encountered. A place where everything is created new. How wonderful is that? God just keeps getting better. It doesn't stop. One great thing happens, and as we're just thrilling with that, He says, oh, by the way, guess what's next? (laughs) And we get there, and He says, hey, there's something else. And we get there. And I believe that is a picture of eternity. That's what it means, by the way, to be heavenly minded. You keep looking forward for what's coming. For the next thing. For what God has called us to. It's out there. Storing up our treasures in heaven, because that's the place we want to be. Seeking the eternal kingdom, the new earth, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem in between. And I'll finish tonight with the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 29. He says, Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. Your father knows you need these things. The next bill you have to pay, you think he's unaware of that? The medical bills stacked up at home, you think he doesn't know about those? The things that come in that shock us and surprise us, you think he was caught off guard? Your father knows you need these things. But you seek his kingdom, Jesus says. These things will be added to you. And then he says these words. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And we're going to be there, New Jerusalem, in a day not far off, maybe a thousand years from now or so. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. It's great encouragement. And Father, even as we finish studying tonight, I cannot wait to get to next week in chapter 22. And then, as, as Joe said, to go back and do it all over again. As Father, just to consider the days in which we live, the last days that we talked about this morning, the Yom Akarim, Father, that we're in that time that is close. And we have a great hope. We are closer, as Paul said, than when we first believed. Father, bring us home. Come and bring these things to conclusion. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.